I love the stories of the Bible, and I know that you do too. And for me, sometimes it's hard not to preach those stories. Growing up, one of my favorite stories was David and Goliath. Uh, I think it was because of the song. And uh, part of it was, uh, here you have a little boy in the Bible that's throwing rocks, and he doesn't get in trouble for it. In, f- <laughs> in, fact, in fact, he's a hero, and I love that God does not... Uh, spare the gory details. Sometimes we think about, uh, you know, God is an adult. Well, he's mature, but God has no age. And so sometimes I think that the things that little boys like, God has something in him too that likes that as well. And, uh, and I, you know, you got you to gotta admit, it's pretty cool that this kid who kills this giant goes and takes the giant's sword and cuts his head off and holds that head up. And I think that, you know, some of the girls are like, ew, that's gross. You know, there's, hey, little boys got to appreciate the Bible too. <laughs> and, and that's not the only story that has, there's some scary stories in the Bible. Uh, some stories that you, you almost can't tell kids. They, you know, you'd have to explain some things they don't need to know right now. But there's some, there's some stories as an adult, I'm like, what is going on here? And I think that's some of the intent that God has in those stories is to shock us. Uh, and, to, and, to, and to tell us some things. I think in, in Judges, I think it's uh, 19 or 21 where he cut up that woman and sent her to the 12 tribes. I think, that, uh, I think that the shock factor is what he was looking for. Like what is going on, people, that we're allowing this, this to happen in our country? This is a sign of where we are. Uh, but there's uh, gory details, Eglon and Ehud, right? <laughs> that is fantastic. Uh, here you have a guy who's most likely handicapped, he's left-handed. No, I'm not saying that being left-handed is a handicap, but in those days, if you were left-handed, it was, you didn't use your left hand unless, say, you lost your right hand in battle or you were born without the use of your right hand, so therefore you had to use your left, which is likely where he was in that, which is why he was not assumed to have had a weapon or to be a threat to the king. And so some of that is a little bit of speculation, but that's what I assume. So he goes into the king, as you know, and he takes his sword and he drives it into the the fat of this king to where it says it closed in around the hilt. You know, if I'm Ehud, I'm I'm like, woo! You know, you can can keep that. I, I think he said he did have a gift for him. And so he left that there with him. And I don't know what that looked like. I hope, it, I hope, I, I hope, I, I hope Ehud doesn't know what it felt like. Um, but then it says, and only in the King James would you have like words like this, and the dirt came out, right? <laughs> did God need to say that? <laughs> but he did, right? And, and today we're going to look at a passage with more gory details. And that is uh, in Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4. I, I really don't know why I originally started studying this. It, I, think, I think it was because I preach in junior camps from time to time, and sometimes the girls will say, how come there's no stories about girls? And there are. There are. Esther is, is, is a fantastic. One of my favorites, of course I say that about a lot of stories, but one of my favorite stories is Esther, and then this is another one. This story has, has uh, two bad guys it has one good guy and two good girls. And I thought, I thought I was going to be able to have, I thought there was going to be two piano players that stayed up here. I have the representation of the two bad guys on the end and the one good guy in the middle. You can thank me for that later. 
You know, you've got the king in Jabin, the king of Canaan, who was likely a king of confederative nations, and, and that makes sense, being the president and the mayor. And, and, then, and then you have Sisera. <laughs> you knew that was coming. <laughs> you knew, he knew it was coming. You have Sisera, who is, who is really the strong arm. If, if, and it appears that Jabin without Sisera, sorry, this is, look, any illustration you can't take too far. Uh, was not, he didn't have much without it, but Jabin, or Sisera was, his arm was the fact that he had 900 chariots of iron. And so he, he ran roughshod over Israel and dominated Israel. And the good people, you had Deborah, who is, the Bible tells us was a prophetess and, uh, and a judge. Now, some people will say, oh, see, look what God has done. But, but often we see that that is a judgment of God. In Isaiah chapter 3, I believe it is, he, he tells, he said, but my people are ruled by women. And it's not that, uh, it's not, uh, that there's anything negative about women, but we see, even in this passage, that when that happens, it is because the men are unwilling to step up. Even Barak, who was used in this passage, was like, well, I'm still not going to go up to battle unless you go with me. And she says, okay, well, I'll go with you. And I don't think this is a punishment for saying, because I'm coming with you. But look, the honor is not going to be given to you. And I think that is, again, a judgment upon the men that aren't doing what God would have them to do. But the honor is going to be given to a woman. Because that is who is following the Lord in this situation. So you have, you have Barak is this good guy, the leader of the army. It's a volunteer army. And then you have the other good girl, Jael, who isn't even a Jew. And so well, let's start reading a couple of verses, and I'd like to tell you the story, but I don't want to miss any of the details. It's quite a long passage, but I'm not one of those guys going to make you stand while I read the entire thing. Verse 1, And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud was dead. Now, Ehud's realm of peace or reign of peace, if you will, was 80 years. But when he died, they fell back into sin. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazor, the captain of whose host was Sisera, which dwelt in Herosheth of the Gentiles. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and 20 years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. And Deborah, a prophetess of the wife of Lapotith, she judged Israel at that time. And she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. So likely when uh, they had a dispute, a, a civil case, they would go to her and she would say, well, this is what God has said about this. And she would rule over them in that sense. But also she spoke for God. She was a prophetess. God was using her to communicate. In verse number six, and she sent and called Barak the son of a Abinoam out of Kadesh Naphtali and said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward the Mount Tabor? Now I want to stop there for a second and just point out how many commands that God has that start with those two letters. Go. We can all do that. Every single one of us. But you'll find in Scripture so many times, just, he, he just says, just go. That's all I'm asking you, just go. And I'm going to do so much for you. And take with thee 10,000 men of children of Naphtali and of the children of Zebulun. And I will draw unto thee 
to the river Kishon, Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into thine hand. And Barak said unto her, If thou wilt go with me, then I will go. But if thou wilt not go with me, then I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with thee, notwithstanding the journey that thou takest shall not be for thine honor, for the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and he went up with 10,000 men at his feet, and Deborah went up with him. And now Heber, the Kenite, which was of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had severed himself, separated himself from the Kenites, and pitched his tent unto the plain of Zaanaim, which is by Kadesh. And they showed Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, was gone up to Mount Tabor. Now, a little, little detail here. This is all surrounding the Valley of Megiddo, or also known as the Valley of Jezreel. Many, many, many battles had taken place here, and one big battle to come is going to be in that same valley. And if you ever look at pictures, Mount Tabor is... It's, it's like a North Carolina mountain. It's not, it's, not, uh, it's not a Colorado Rocky mountain, okay? It's not this massive thing that if you had an army on there, you may not even see it. But it looks sort of like a hill that if, people, uh, if you had 10,000 people on there, you could most definitely see them. And so they told Sisera, hey, Barak, verse 12, the son of Abinoam, was gone up to Mount Tabor. And Sisera gathered together all his chariots, even 900 chariots of iron, and all the people were with him from Herosheth of the Gentiles unto the river Kishon. That's exactly what God said. I'm going to draw him to the river of Kishon. So he sees Barak and he's like, oh, yeah, we're going to go down and meet them in this valley for battle. Now, where would be the place if you were chariots that you would want to have a battle? On a mountain or in the flat valley? Oh, absolutely in the flat valley. And Deborah said unto Barak, Up, for this is the day which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thine hand. Why? Because she said, look, God's going to bring him to the river Kishon, and then he'll deliver. So look, he's at the river Kishon. Go down and, and just go. Just go do what God said to do, and that is just get there, and God will show you the rest. Is not the Lord gone out before thee? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor and 10,000 men after him. And the Lord discomfited Sisera and all his chariots and all his host with the edge of the sword before Barak, so that Sisera lighted down off his chariot and fled away on his feet. Now you might say, I'm missing something here. How is it that 10,000 men of a volunteer army who very most likely did not have good instruments of, of war, they may not have had very good swords if they had swords at all because a lot of times when they were dominated by one of these other nations, those things were, those implements were taken from them and, and blacksmiths were, were squashed out so that they couldn't make weapons. Regardless, this is no comparison to 900 chariots of iron. If you have horses in battle, what you'll do is you'll go shoulder to shoulder, horse to horse, and you'll just trample the other army. That's the goal. If you have chariots, you can spread those horses out. So not only do you have the horse, but you have the chariot. And these chariots of iron were known to have blades affixed to those wheels. Some say those blades may have extended up to four feet, which is pretty lethal. I would think. I mean, I don't know. Horses can run pretty fast. I don't know if pulling a chariot slows, how much it slows them down, but let's just say 30 miles an hour, all right? That's faster than I can run, faster than you can run. And so now you can spread those things out. And I did a little math. I don't know how wide a chariot is, and I'm assuming that the blades on each side were four feet, but let's just say that the chariot is, you know, four feet wide, 
Okay, that makes sense to me. You could maybe have somebody with a bow or a spear and somebody to drive the chariot in that, in that chariot. And so they lined up. And even if they lined up with absolutely no space between chariots and, and, and ran two rows. So you had one row of 450 of the 900, shoulder to shoulder, chariot to chariot. It would, that first row would be over a mile wide. So you're not getting away when they say, hey, we're just going to, we're going to mow you down. They literally mean we're going to mow you down. No wonder they were fearful. Now, the part that you say, well, what am I missing? How did they win that battle? How did that happen? What do you mean the Lord discomforted them? Well, there's a little bit of a clue here. And that is where it says that Sisera got off his chariot. In what scenario is that a good idea? Right? I realize when people panic, they, they make very bad decisions. But that is not a good scenario. The best clues we get are from the Song of Deborah in chapter 5. If you go to that chapter in verse 4, at the end of it, she says this. And the heavens dropped, the clouds also dropped water. Yeah, what do you think that is? It's rain. Now, some people think that this was after the rainy season in a dry time, and that's why the chariots were there. It's because there was no worry that they were going to get stuck in the mud. And so that God brought rain in a time when there was not expected to be rain. And the verse 5, the very beginning, says, The mountains melted before the Lord. So the idea that water is, is, is just raining down, even on the mountains, possibly minor mudslides, doesn't really matter because the river Kishon would have risen and therefore overflowed, and that valley would have become very muddy and wet. Not a place for chariots. Not a place for horses. Not a place where they can move very well. And so it would have been very easy for then those 10,000 volunteer men to go in and destroy them. And it says at the end of verse 16 of chapter 4, and, they, and, and all the hosts of Sisera fell upon the edge of the sword, and there was not a man left. Well, God brought the victory. Verse 17, Howbeit Sisera fled away on his feet to the tent of Jael, his wife, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jamin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said unto him, Turn in, my lord, turn in to me, fear not. And when he turned in unto her with the tent, she covered him with a mantle. And he said unto her, Give me, I pray thee, a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And she opened a bottle of milk and gave him drink and covered him. And he said unto her, Stand in the tent door of the tent, and it shall be when any man doth come and inquire of thee, and say, Is there a man here? Thou shalt say, No. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a nail of the tent, and took a hammer in her hand, and went softly in unto him, and smote the nail in his temples, and fastened it into the ground, for she was fast asleep. He was fast asleep and weary, so he died. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> he was thankful for that death. You'd wake up and your head stapled to the ground. And my wife asked, she, she said, how is it that, why did she pick that of all things? There wasn't a butter knife around or, you know, anything. Why did she pick that? Well, come to find out that in this day, uh, it was the woman's job to put the tent up. So she would have known how to use that, that uh, mallet, that hammer, and those tent pegs effectively. Well, she used it very effectively. <laughs> And, I, and I, I, just, I just find it fascinating that that's what she chose to do, that God chose to use her in this way, and God chose to record that for us and use our imaginations as we, as we think in pictures about that situation. But let's continue. 
In verse 22, And behold, Barak, as Barak pursued Sisera, and Jael came out to meet him and said, Come, and I will show thee the man whom thou seekest. And when he came into her, behold, Sisera lay dead, and the nail was in his temples. So God subdued on that day Jabin, king of Canaan, before the children of Israel. And as I've read this, I thought, I don't know what this means. What, why did God put this here? And so what I do when I don't understand, I just keep reading and I keep praying, I keep reading, I keep praying. And there's one word that has jumped out to me in this chapter. One word. And that's that one word that I want you to remember. And that word we find in verse number one. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. You know, seven times in the book of Judges, this is a theme, that they did evil. Twice it says that they did evil again. The other times it says that they did evil. And this is the only time, not only in the book of Judges, but it's the only time in the entire Bible where you find the words, again, did evil, and again comes first. I made sure. I was like, well, maybe this is just a, the way they translated it. Maybe it actually comes after. No, no, no. The, the other times the word comes before or after, and this time it is before. Why? You've been there, haven't you? Where you said, again? Again? I thought I had victory in this area. I, th- I, thought, I thought I was going to not do this again. But you did. You know, I, I know where we are. I know who people are. And so do you. You're talking with somebody. You're telling stories. And you tell a story that's not true. Or you tell part of that story that isn't true. Maybe some of it is, but you embellish it. You exaggerate it. What is that? It's lying. And you walk away and the Holy Spirit convicts you. But all you think of is what the devil's telling you. Again. Again. Man, I'm a college student. Why am I lying? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this again? It could be, it could be, maybe it's not lying. Maybe it's gossip. And you're with somebody and somebody's name comes up and you begin to tear them down. You begin to say things about them that, that maybe they're bothering you, maybe they're true, but you know you are cutting them down because you don't like them. And you walk away from that conversation and later on the Holy Spirit convicts you and you think, man, what am I doing? I know I shouldn't do that. Maybe you lift yourself up in pride in that cutting down, in that tearing down, or maybe it's in that conversation, you're telling things about yourself and you're thinking to yourself, even while you're saying it, I'm bragging, what am I doing? I'm doing this again. Maybe it's a lustful heart. And there you are all alone at that same time of day, in that same place, and you feel that creeping temptation. Maybe you're tired. Maybe you're frustrated and you think you know I can have a few moments of pleasure I can think these thoughts I can get on my phone I can use my tablet I can do this and I'll feel better and then you say again I did this again why and you got to think Israel's thinking the same thing here we are again in the same place There's patterns in this passage. One is a pattern of people that they do evil again. And so do you. I want you to notice, turn back to chapter 2. We're going to flip back and forth 
Fortunately, it's not very far. Chapter 2, verse 11, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. Now look at verse number 19. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they returned and corrupted themselves more. Now look at chapter 3 and verse 7. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served Balaam and the groves. And if we turn to chapter 3 and verse 12, And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And then in chapter 4, we have verse 1, again did evil. If you go to chapter 6, you'll find that they did evil. If you go to chapter 10, you'll find that they did evil. If you go to chapter 13, you'll find that they did evil again. You know, who told you that when you confess your sin, that you'll never sin again? Who told you that? No one. Do you believe in sinless perfection? No. Then why do we get so frustrated? Well, we don't want to do it. But don't have an expectation that you'll never sin again. That's the goal, be ye perfect. But even Job, who was called perfect, made sacrifice just in case. Made sacrifice. Hey, look, we're going to make sure that we are right with God. That's what God wants, is a consistent daily walk with Him. That when you do sin and you are convicted, that you do get right. That is part of victory. But there was sin again. We go back to chapter 2 again. We find that there's bondage. After, after they did evil, verse 14 says, that the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and he delivered them to the hand of the spoilers and he sold them into the hands of their enemies. Go to chapter 3 and verse 8. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and he sold them into the hand of, I'm not even going to say this guy's name. Yeah, neither. Yeah, you can say it in your head, but say it out loud is a different story. Verse 12 And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And then we can go to chapter 4, where we are, and verse 2 And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin. Now, as we go through the book of Judges, we find that they were sold to the Canaanites, the Ammonites, the Philistines more than once. They were sold to the Moabites. They were, all of them. They were always in bondage. Look, every time you sin, you're at risk of being in bondage. And some of you know what that bondage feels like. Again, there is a pattern and there's always consequences. And sometimes it does feel like that. Paul, this is a very helpful thing. That when the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans is talking about a struggle with sin, he says, I know that even when there is the, the law, I see another law in my members bringing me into captivity of the law of sin. He says, even when I want to do right, I know that there's, there's a rule, there's a domination in my life that wants to bring me into the captivity. And that, that when I want to do right, evil is always present with me. Hey, I'm on the same road as Paul, and so are you. But there is victory. But there is victory. Sin always has consequences. Job said, They that plow in iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. We're told in Galatians, You sow to the flesh, you will of the flesh reap corruption. That's what they are doing. They're sowing to the flesh. Hey, this looks good. This activity looks good. These Canaanites around us, they're doing some things that look fun. Maybe, maybe it's okay. And they allowed their influences around them to influence them to do wrong. You ever been there? You allow the influence of people to lead you on a path that's not right? Look, maybe you're not the one that started gossiping. Maybe you're not the one that started bragging. But you jump in because of that influence. It could be the phone. 
man, there's a lot of dangers. Even on things that like, oh, this could be fun and entertaining. Yeah, you know what I've noticed? And I'm like, I'm trying to totally get off of the, the reels thing. Like I want to watch, this is, okay, this is me. I want to watch videos on drywall. Okay, I do. Like it's, it, I'm like, that looks fun. I want to learn how to do that. But no matter how many times I look for it, other things come up. I'm like, stop. And some of those things aren't good. That's an influence. And I'm like, look, this is not helpful. This is not helpful in my life. And I have, <laughs> I have banned so many people from my Facebook because I'm like, look, they're bringing up emotions in me that I don't need to have. I don't need to be angry with them for their, you know what, <laughs> their stupidity. <laughs> But people do evil again. I do and you do. But there's a pattern, another pattern here, and it's a pattern of God. Again, he delivers. Look at uh, chapter 2. At the very beginning, at, uh, at verse number 16. Nevertheless, this is after they sinned. This is after the bondage. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judge, judges which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. We can go to chapter 3 and verse 9. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, and the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel. We go to chapter 3 again in verse 15. But when the children of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer. Chapter number 4. We know who the deliverers were. It was Deborah and Barak and Jael. We can go on and we'll eventually see that Samson is one of those deliverers. If you continue further into the future, we see that Jesus Christ is the ultimate deliverer. He is our deliverer. Look, God always has a deliverer. Isn't that awesome? That regardless of the fact that again and again and again, again God sends a deliverer. Again, God is there to convict you. Again, God is there to correct you. Again, God is there to help you, to assist you, to grow you, to feed you his word. Again. God is so good. Again. God is always there. I find it fascinating. Verse 4, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, and it says in verse 5, she dwelt under the palm tree. Everybody knew where she lived. God never left them, although they left God. He was always there. Always there. He never left. You know, I find that people that walk away from God, whether kids that were in my youth group or people that have been here, there's always a path back. There's always someone there as a representation of God. There's always somebody that is God's deliverer for them to help them back on their path to God. And there's always a path. Because the other thing is, is God always hears. You can go to all these passages. I, I love this. I actually have a little tear drawn by each one. Why? Because in verse 18, when God delivered them, for it repented the Lord because of their groanings. And if you go to chapter 3 and verse 9, when the children of Israel cried to the Lord, he sent a deliverer. And if you go to verse 15, when the children of Israel cried to the Lord, he sent a deliverer. When you go to chapter 4, and the children of Israel cried to the Lord, he was there. God always hears your prayer. I love this verse in Isaiah 65, 24. And it shall come to pass before they call, I will hear. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. Why? Because as the psalmist says, he's inclined his ear towards us who sin again. But he's there to deliver again. The children of Israel cried by reason of their bondage in Egypt, and the Lord heard them. First Chronicles 5.20, For they cried in battle, 
And he was entreated of them because they trusted in him, because they placed their trust in him. That's what that crying is. It's like, I've come to the end of my rope. I've sinned again. And Lord, I need to deliver. And he's there. He's there. And he always sends help. He always sends help. God's power is greater than the bondage of our sin. Sometimes the devil tells us that that's not true, that we've dug a hole so deep that we can't get out of it, that we've dug our own grave. But God is there. But God hears and he'll deliver again. His word is always true. She said, look, if you go to this place, God will draw them and God will deliver you. And it will not be to your honor, but it'll be a woman that God honors in this situation. It's not even a Jew. It's not even a Jew. God's going to honor somebody else. Because his power is greater. You never would have guessed any of this would have happened. You never would have guessed this is how this battle is going to to fall out. How many times is that true in our life? I never would have guessed how God was going to do this. We don't know. But God says, I I want you to just trust me. Get back into this relationship of trust with me. But it's going to have to start with you crying out to the Lord. God is always better to us than we deserve. You know, who who do you think ended up with the 900 chariots after this? Yeah. Yeah, do you think they left them there to rust? I wouldn't have. I mean, like, I'm like, all right, Barrett, you're not taking one. I'm taking one home. Well, I'm going to drive my family to church with this iron chariot. <laughs> you know, here we come. <laughs> you, know, you guys should have come out to battle instead of staying at home. You're, you're welcome. But there's another pattern here. There's a pattern of people. There's a pattern of God. And there's a pattern of victory. Again, God gets the victory. But how do I, how do I have this pattern of victory? So, uh, I did not, when I was here, I, I, played, I, I played volleyball every game that I was healthy enough to play it, but I did not like volleyball, but they made me play. I played every softball game. I played every basketball game unless I was sick or on a ministry trip. But I didn't play like the first two years of turkey bowl. Now, I don't think you guys do turkey bowl anymore, but it used to be that during Thanksgiving, we didn't really have a break. They didn't do school on Thursday, but you couldn't really do anything else uh, because we had like 16 concerts a day and... <laughs> and turkey bowl in the morning, and it, it, was, it was full, full, full schedule. And, and so I played one year, because they're like, oh, you need to play, you need to play. And I was like, look, I mean, I throw football, and I catch football, but I don't know football. And so I played for the, the our quarterback had these three-by-five cards, and he had these plays, and I learned to love football. Well, then a couple years ago, I played, and, and uh, uh we had this guy who was our quarterback, and he had the three-by-five cards. And we had this one play, and we ran that play. And I, w- I happened to be the tight end, and so I was lined up on the right side, and he had one wide receiver on the left. Now, I know this may be a little complicated for some of you, but you had one guy that's supposed to catch the ball on the left, <laughs> and he had three guys supposed to catch the ball on the right. And everybody, this guy ran two steps this way and then straight to the sideline. The wide receiver on the far right, he just ran straight down to the end zone, and the other wide receiver, he just kind of ran out in the flat like this. He just went straight out, and he was just supposed to stand there in case it was a, just a, a, a failure play. The quarterback, when he got the ball, he ran to the sideline as an option. So if he wanted to run the ball, he could run the ball, and then that wide receiver could block for him. Or the whole time, he's looking downfield at that wide receiver, whose job was just to outrun the guy guarding him, right? Well, I'm the tight end. My job on this side of the quarterback is to just take three steps this way and go that way. It was the opposite way. Now, 
unless you're Brett Favre or Josh Allen or somebody who breaks rules like that, you don't throw to the opposite side of the field. But after we did that one time, I looked at the quarterback and I was like, man, here's the problem. When the quarterback runs that way, the guy guarding me, he has a decision to make. And that decision is, do I guard the tight end, me, and follow him out this way? Or do I guard the quarterback who runs that way? Because now he's my job because he took off that way. And if I don't go after him, he's a free runner. And I was I could hear him arguing. I could hear him telling the other team, you guys got to pick this guy up. And they're like, no, I've got my man. And I told the quarterback, I was like, look, there's nobody within 25 yards of me over here. I can do anything I want. I said, you could throw it and not even look, just throw it that direction. And I'm the only guy over there to catch it. And we started doing that. We did it like, it was, we had like either a touchdown or like 50 yards every time we did the play. Now, <laughs> we didn't do the play every time because we were like, you know, they might come up with a way. But literally, we knew from early on in that game, there's no way until they figure this out that they're going to beat us because we had touchdown after touchdown after touchdown on the same play. And we, they either threw it to me or they threw it long or the quarterback ran. And this guy, he was so frustrated because he was like, guys, I can't guard two people going opposite directions. <laughs> but it was, our, it was our victory play. It was, this is what's going to get us the win. And there is a pattern for victory that is here. Super simple. Number one, when you find yourself again in sin, you cry out to the Lord. That's the, that's the, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look, this isn't the insurance policy that we're just like, well, I can always confess it. No, this is genuine. I'm sorry for my sin and I want to confess it. This is where David said in Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledge my sin. I, I told God all about it and he forgave us the iniquity of my, of my soul. He, he, he cleansed that because that's what God wants for us. That's what he provided with the blood of Jesus Christ. There isn't any sin. There isn't any bondage that we can do that that power is not great enough. Cry out to the Lord. Trust him and obey. You look at what Deborah, Barak, they, they, did, they just, okay, we're going to go. That's all God said to do is go. So we're going to go. We trust him. This is what salvation is. This is what salvation is. You're going to trust him. You're going to obey him. You're going you're to call on him in confession. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's what this is. We're going to do everything that we're going to know to do. We're just going to trust the Lord. His word is there. Just follow the, the simple steps. You don't have to live your whole Christian life in one day. It's one step at a time. Trust him and obey. And victory is always from God. That's really not a step. It's just a bonus. It's not you anyway. You, you're obeying, but you're just, God's doing the rest. God is the one changing you. Again, it's like when you were 12. Yeah, you're growing, but you don't see it. You don't feel it. But it's what God is doing in your life. Victory is always of him. It's the rain that God brought. It's the mud that he made. God overthrew that. It's, it's the direction that Sisera decided to run. The tent that he came up to. The woman who said, even though my husband's in league with your king, now I'm with this team. I'm with God's people. And I know what I need to do. And I don't care how gross it is. It's what I'm going to do. You might sin again. But remember, God will hear you again. He will deliver you again. And you can have the victory again. This is the story of Genesis to Revelation. That although again man sins, that God takes what we break and he makes it new again. That is who he is. Now, I don't know where you are. I don't know what sins in your life. I don't know what bondage you feel like you're in. 
But I'm not naive enough to think that because you're in Bible college, you don't have problems. I did. Many others have had. But you need to do what God is telling you to do today. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, would you bow your heads in prayer? Maybe you find yourself in that pattern of sin and you are miserable. This is one of the reasons that we have an opening revival is because we want to provide that opportunity, that call of God to say, would you come again? I don't care how many times you come, just keep coming. And he'll be there again. He'll hear you again. He'll deliver you again. He'll forgive you again. Maybe there's something that God has pointed out. Would you obey him? Would you come as he's called you? Dear Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your patience. We thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, I pray that as we are learning to walk with you, that as we sin again and again and again, we would keep coming back to you again and again and again. And I thank you that you forgive again, again, again.